after my message that Cindy said, Mike, I think you're skipping some of the stuff in the book of Acts. <laughs> and if you're following along, you've discovered that I'm certainly doing that. This, uh, this series that we're doing as we're going through Acts is not designed to be an in-depth study of the entire book of Acts and all that took place. However, I do hope that you are digging in and going through everything that's in the book of Acts as we're going through it. My goal in going through the book of Acts the way that we're doing is to be a companion teaching to the big church study that our life groups are all involved in. My hope is that what we cover here enhances what you're learning in the life groups to help reinforce it. And of course I'm adding to some of the information that's in there, giving a little bit more background. But that's what it's designed for. So not an in-depth study, but boy, I hope you're reading it because there's so many things in there. And as you remember, hopefully, I've been focusing a little bit extra on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's importance and involvement in the beginning of the early church. You know, it shouldn't be a surprise to us because Jesus told the disciples after he had given him the, the mission to go and make disciples in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth, he did tell them, don't do anything, don't go anywhere until the power has come. And we see the Holy Spirit throughout, and I want to continue to stress that, but I also want to stress the human aspect of responding to the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit working with people, individuals, who respond in obedience to what the Holy Spirit is asking them to do. And we see that over and over as we're going through it. I would like to spend more time in review this morning, but I'm not going to do that. I'm going to just give a very brief review. The first week, what we looked at primarily was some of Jesus' own teaching about the Holy Spirit as he was teaching the disciples and preparing them for him not being there. In John chapters 14 through 16 in particular, there's a lot of teaching that Jesus is telling them about the Comforter who he is going to send, the Teacher who's going to be with them how he's not going to leave them or abandon them. He's going to send. As he goes to the Father, he's going to have the Father send the Holy Spirit. So Jesus did significant teaching to them, and we looked at that. Then the second week, we talked a little bit more about how the Holy Spirit is evident and working through people. We looked at Peter, first and foremost. Here's Peter, the fisherman, who stands up on the day of Pentecost and gives this amazing sermon, and thousands of people accept Christ the Holy Spirit working through Peter, and also the Holy Spirit working in those thousands of people, even as Peter is preaching, to soften their hearts and open their hearts to read the, receive the truth of the gospel message. The Holy Spirit at work with people and in people's lives. Third week, we talked about bold faith. Having bold faith, we looked at all of the persecution that was taking place and how the persecution was intensifying all the time. I read a scripture after we talked about how the apostles had been threatened to not speak about in the name of Jesus. Don't talk, don't teach, don't do anything in that name. And they continued to do what the angel of the Lord told them to do. Exactly the opposite of what the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin told them to do. And then ultimately it says the apostles were taken before them and they were flogged. They were beaten. Same word as when Jesus was flogged. They were beaten. And afterwards, they were beaten. They, after they were beaten, they told them again, don't speak or teach anymore about this Jesus. And in Acts 
chapter 5, verses 41 and 42. I just want to read them because I think they're so powerful. It says, The apostles left the Sanhedrin and they were rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And then day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Bold faith. And we touched on how we need to have bold faith. And we looked at three quick points. One, speaking up and saying something when it would be easier to just keep your mouth shut. We see that opportunity. And that is the second point we talked about is opportunities present themselves. And again, if we pray for opportunities to share the good news of the gospel, I guarantee you God will answer that prayer. The question is, will you take advantage of the opportunity when it presents itself? Bold faith. And thirdly, not only taking advantage of the opportunities, but creating opportunities to share our faith. Stepping out in faith. You know, what are we afraid of? What is our fear? Fear of man. Fear of what? Fear of rejection. It's the gospel they're rejecting, not us. You know, we're commanded to speak in love and share the good news of the gospel. Bold faith. And last week we looked at, the title of the message was God is Still God. And what we looked at is sometimes unexplainable, horrendous things happen to unbelievably faithful followers of Christ. It happened in the scripture and we see it today in our own lives, and our own walks. Bad things do happen to good people. But God is still God. We looked at Stephen, this faithful man filled with the Holy Spirit, a love and a boldness. And they stoned him to death. But God was still God. The persecution of the church and the believers God is still God. The apostles, God is still God. And in our daily walks, our daily lives, we see things that we can't explain. We don't understand why. The question why comes up so often. And a lot of times, we don't have an answer. Looking back in history, we can see how God used things in the Scripture. And actually, in our personal lives, we can look back sometimes after the fact and see, wow, God was at work even in the midst of that. God is still God. And whatever happens, we're exhorted and should take the example of those we see in Scripture that no matter what happens, we need to stay focused on the mission as Jesus defined it. Go and make disciples. Share the good news. The simple message that we see Peter sharing over and over and over again is Jesus was crucified and died. He was buried. On the third day He rose again. And there are many, many witnesses of the fact so that we can trust and believe in what the Word of God says for the forgiveness of sins. Simple gospel, simple message. But isn't it absolutely amazing? If you take the time to think about this, isn't it amazing? Here we are approximately 2,000 years, almost 2,000 years later, and it's still the message. It's still the gospel, and it's still going forth. A lot of things just kind of come and go and disappear. A lot of trends, a lot of this stuff. Here's this message, and think about it. Twelve guys. Actually, until they put Matthew in, Matthias in, there was only 11 of them left. The ladies that had been following him. Out of that group, simple group of followers of Jesus with this super simple message, persecuted the powers that be, Rome trying to stop it, the church of the day trying to stop it, And it's still here. It survived. Actually, it's thrived in many ways. 
this small group. They came and they upset the balance, the delicate balance between Rome and the Jewish church, the Jewish leaders. It came and kind of undermined and changed completely the message of Judaism that had been in place for hundreds and hundreds of years. And it still survived. And it still survives to this day. They were successful. Nothing of them in their own strength, but they were successful. There's a scripture, every time I read it, I like it in a number of different translations, but it's very simple in Acts 17, verse 6. It says this. This is when they came to Thessalonica. Paul and Barnabas and and, the, and the, the people were all upset. And they say, these men who upset the world have come here also. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. The good news was spreading. And the reality is, the church should in a sense be still turning the world upside down. Because we're supposed to be distinctly different from the world. The more we come, become like the world the less effective we are at turning the world upside down. I know if you're like me, you read the, if you listen to the news or you read some of the things that are going on in the world, it's easy to dis- get discouraged. I mean, it's amazing how many times people I'm talking to, we end up at the same place over and over. Unless God does something amazing, we're in big trouble. Well, that should be a reminder that God is amazing. He's still in control and He is still God. And he is the only answer. And the church is supposed to be his hands and feet, his mouthpieces. We need to be actively involved in carrying out the mission that he called us to. So today when we go on forward in the, into the book of Acts, what I'm going to be looking at and focusing on primarily is what, what I would call the revealing of what God started and his ultimate plan from, from before the foundation of the world was And we see it being launched, I believe, with Paul's conversion and also with Peter and a Gentile named Cornelius. So we're going to be focusing primarily on those two things as we go forward. If you're reading in the book of Acts, all of a sudden we come to a chapter and we read about this man named Cornelius. Cornelius is a centurion. He's a Gentile. And he's stationed in Caesarea a city along the coast of the Mediterranean. And it's interesting how he is described. It says he is a devout man, a godly man. He is a man who has given a great amount of alms to the Jewish people. And then it says he is praised continually. And I'm thinking, this is a Gentile. And then we read, and, and it says that An angel of the Lord comes to him in a vision. And the first thing that it says to him is, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. That just strikes me as amazing. Your prayers and your alms, your generosity towards God's people have ascended to him as a memorial. He'll never forget because he's God. I think we can learn something from that, but I won't go there. And at the same time he is having this vision, there's another man, Peter, who's on a rooftop in the city of Joppa. And if we had a map, you would see Caesarea and Joppa are just separated by a short distance along the coastline of the Mediterranean. And Cornelius' vision, 
he says, there is, the angel of the Lord says to him, there's a certain man named Peter. And he's in Joppa. Send for him. That's it. And Peter's having this prayer time on the rooftop at noon. And it says something really interesting to me, and I never really thought much about it until this week. It says he's on the rooftop praying. And now he sounds like me because it says he gets hungry and wants to eat. And I'm thinking, really, that's fit in the Scripture? Why would that be there? Well, the vision is about food. So it fits together really well. He has this vision, and he sees what looks like a sheet coming down, and on this sheet is all kinds of animals that no holy and righteous Jew would eat or touch because there was all the dietary laws that they had in place under the law. And in this vision, the food comes down, and Peter hears the words from the angel of the Lord, kill the animals and eat it. And of course, Peter says, no way. No way a Jew is going to touch those animals, kill those animals, and eat those animals. It's just not going to happen. But in Acts chapter 10, verse 15, the voice again speaks to him in this vision, and it says these words, Do not call anything impure that God has cleansed. And as I was thinking about that this week, my mind went way beyond the food, because it's not about the food. It's about what God's original plan, the mission that God has sent the church on. Jesus came for the whole world. Up to this point, the message was primarily, exclusively about Jesus was to the Jews. The rest of the world, those Gentiles, those Samaritans, those other pagans were unclean. They were impure. They were unholy. Don't eat with them. Don't visit with them. Ignore them. And in this vision, when he's looking at the food and talking specifically about the food, I believe the meaning went way beyond the food. And it says, do not call anything impure that I have cleansed. They are going to learn that there is a a whole part of the world that needs the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The Gentile world. And God is going to declare them pure. And we should never call them unclean. Because the gospel's for them also. In verse 34 and 35 of Acts chapter 10, Peter speaks and he says this. This is after he's been called by Cornelius. The men come in the vision. In the vision, after he tells them to kill and eat, he says, uh, There's going to be three men and they're looking for you. And doesn't say it, but it's clearly assumed they're going to be Gentiles. Don't worry about it. Just go with them. Just go with them. So he does. And they go to Cornelius' house. And when they get there, Cornelius tells Peter everything about his vision. And now Peter is connecting the dots to his vision. And then he speaks these words, and he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. But he accepts men from every nation who fear him 
and do what is right. We read these words and we don't understand probably the mindset, the mind shift that is having to take place in Peter's mind. Everything that they have been taught as Jews, everything that they have practiced as Jews, everything is being changed right now and God has chosen to use Peter to implement the beginning of that major change, that major shift. So Peter then, what's he do? He shares the good news with Cornelius. Now Cornelius, it says he had had all his family there, invited relatives, and had close friends. So there was quite a group there when Peter comes. Quite a group of Gentiles. And Peter goes through and and explains about Jesus. He starts out with, you probably heard about, and then he continues to expound on Jesus and all that happened, all that he did, and ultimately to the cross and to the resurrection for the forgiveness of sins. And then it says this, they all believe, the whole works, they all believe, and then it says this, they are then baptized in the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues, exalting the Lord. And then they said, let's get baptized in water. I think there's a significance that we won't dwell on today, but they all believed. After they all believed, what takes place when you believe? Immediately the Holy Spirit moves in and indwells us. It says they believed, then they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, they spoke in tongues exalting the Lord, and then they were baptized in water. The whole works. We read it, go, wow, that's pretty neat. I can only imagine what Peter must have been thinking when he saw this and witnessed this, that they had received the Holy Spirit just like they had all received it on the day of Pentecost. And then it says, word spread throughout Judea about the Gentiles accepting the Lord. The pot is brewing, if you would. If you would be familiar with the map and the geography of Caesarea, the city of Caesarea was in Samaria, to the north. Judea is to the south. And now it says word spread throughout all Judea. And the real significance of that is Jerusalem is located in Judea. And Jerusalem is where the apostles still are. And Jerusalem is the headquarters, so to speak, of this new church. And the story got spread there and throughout Judea that the Gentiles were accepting Jesus. And then it says, Peter returned to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, he's telling everybody about what happened. And there's this group that get upset. And they get upset. First of all, think about what they're getting upset about. They get upset because they were associating and eating with Gentiles. You see the strength and the power of the Jewish training, the Jewish religious system. First thing that they said, what are you doing, Peter? You know better than this. You ate with them, you fellowshiped with them, you talked with them. We don't do that kind of stuff. But Peter explains all that had happened. And this time in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, it says, When they heard this, they had no further objection, and they praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. So the first time there's a little bit of a confrontation with the Jewish leaders, 
And they're trying to incorporate some of the law back into this salvation thing. It's, it's stopped. It doesn't go anywhere. And if we recall now, it takes a big jump to a city called Antioch. And if you recall, when the persecution started, the people were scattered from Jerusalem. And they were scattered in all directions. Some of them actually went over into Egypt, into northern Africa. Some went north into Phoenicia and further on up into a city called Antioch of Syria. And Antioch is significant in our Christian history because Antioch became the place where believers were first called Christians and they became the missionary church, the sending church for Paul on his missionary journeys. So the scene switches to this church, this group in Antioch. And it says they are first coming and ministering to the Jews. Obviously, the Jews scatter. They take the good news of Jesus, the gospel message to fellow Jews. But then it says this. Some men show up from Cyrene and Cyprus. And I hope you're not getting lost in the geography. I'd urge you to have a map when you read the book of Acts. Cyprus is an an island out in the Mediterranean Sea off the coast of Caesarea. Cyrene is on the south side of the Mediterranean Sea in northern Africa. The gospel had spread. And it says some men from Cyrene probably got on a boat and went to Cyprus and they continued on the boat to Antioch. And when they got there, it says they started sharing the good news of the gospel with Gentiles. And Gentiles started getting saved in great numbers. And as we typically see the pattern, the news of this spread, and it spread all the way back to Jerusalem. In the Jerusalem church, by this time, most of the apostles are all still there. And James, the brother of Jesus, is kind of becoming the, the head of the church in Jerusalem. So the Jerusalem church hears about this. And they send a man named Barnabas to go up and check this thing out. What's going on in Antioch? Barnabas goes up there. And Barnabas, by the way, boy, if, if you ever want to have a great description, Barnabas, man of faith, filled with the Holy Spirit, a good man, great reputation. Barnabas. They send him up. Barnabas sees what's going on. And he says you know, to himself, I need to go get Paul. We need more help. We're growing so fast as a church, we need some teachers, and there's probably no one better than Saul who has become Paul to be the teacher. And again, if you had the map, you'd see he's in a, his, what was his hometown, basically, of Tarsus. And Tarsus is just a little bit further north from Antioch. He goes and gets Paul, and Paul comes back with him, and they spend a long time there teaching the Word of God. And it's growing rapidly, and things are going smoothly in Antioch. And then an interesting thing happens, and I hope you're tracking with me a little bit. Some prophets and teachers come up from Jerusalem to Antioch. You've got this great church, it's booming, people are becoming more and more and more, more and more followers, more and more Christians. And one of the prophets, and his name happened to be Agabus, and he comes up and he prophesies about a severe drought that's going to cover the world. 
in the words they use. And they decide to receive an offering of alms to send back to Jerusalem. And they do this. Everybody gives as they feel led. And they do this and they decide that Paul and Barnabas should take it back to Jerusalem. And I tell you that part of the story just to know now Paul, Barnabas, head to Jerusalem. In the meantime, this evil king, Herod, is in control. And he was getting a little upset and the Pharisees were getting his ear and they arrested one of the apostles, James, the brother of John. And they killed him with a sword. And Herod says, wow, the people love that. So we went and arrested Peter. In all of this, we see the Holy Spirit work. Peter is arrested and he's put in prison. It tells us he's in chains, his hands are in chains. And he's laying between, sleeping between two guards. And there's guards at the door and there's guards at the gate and the gate is locked. And Herod's fully intent on killing Peter the next day. But during the night, an angel of the Lord comes. And, he, and it's interesting. It says he pretty much nudged him, kicked him on the side to wake him up. He didn't know whether he was awake or having a vision. The chains fell off. He got up, told him, he said, put your sandals on, put your tunic on, and we're going out. They walked out, and the next thing he knows, he, he sees the gate being opened. They walk through the gate, and now he knows he's awake. And he goes back to the house where the people are praying for him. And he joins them. The Holy Spirit, the angel of the Lord, at work. And then all of a sudden we go back to Antioch. Saul and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, go back to Antioch. And now we're getting to the part of the story I really wanted to talk about. The first missionary journey. It tells us when Paul returned to Antioch, he shared everything that had taken place. And it says there's some prophets from all these different locations, some teachers from all these different locations. And in prayer and seeking the Lord, the Holy Spirit tells them to set apart Saul and Barnabas to go as missionaries, what we would call missionaries. So they said that, they talked about it, they pulled Paul and, and Barnabas aside, and then it says they prayed some more, and they fasted some more, and then they laid hands on them and sent them out as missionaries. It's what we call the first missionary journey of Paul. And everywhere he went, pretty much the same pattern. He would get to the city, he would go to the Jews, to the synagogues. He would share the gospel message, he'd talk about Jesus. Sometimes people would believe, and more often than not, they got upset. Sometimes they tortured him, sometimes they tried to arrest him, sometimes they tried to stone him. One time he was stoned and they thought he was dead outside the city. But after they would reject him, then he would go to the Gentiles. And the Gentiles would receive the good news of the gospel. And everywhere he went, the same pattern took place. He would go and honor the Jews and try to go there first. And they rejected it. He would kick the dust off his sandals and go to the Gentiles. And when his life got threatened, he got up and he went to the next city. 
And in the, during all this time, everywhere he went, he planted a church. And we'll read that eventually he, he sets in elders in every church. And as I mentioned last week, we see then even when he left all these churches after all his missionary journeys, he wrote letters back to each of these churches. These letters which make up the bulk of our New Testament, people are still being encouraged, taught, and challenged, instructed by his letters 2,000 years later. And when he gets back to Antioch after this first journey, he tells the disciples everything that had happened as he traveled, told them about all the salvations, told them about the Gentiles, how many were getting saved. And now we're in Acts chapter 15, if you're still tracking. He spent some time with the disciples, quite a lot of time actually, up in Antioch. And in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Some men came down from Judea to Antioch. Remember, Jerusalem is in Judea. They came down from Judea to Antioch, and they were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Here comes man redefining the church. Here comes legalism trying to change grace. It says they had some great debates and discussions. Can you imagine Paul when these guys come and they start teaching, you've got to be circumcised according to the law of Moses. In other words, you've got to become a Jew first, then you can become a follower of Jesus. And here Paul has been suffering been been persecuted, he's been traveling all of this time to all these cities, and what's he been proclaiming? Grace. We've been saved by grace through faith, believing in Jesus. Everywhere he's went, that's been his message. No prerequisites before you can accept the grace of God. And they come, these guys, and you can imagine the debates. And evidently they couldn't solve the debate because after a period of time they decided, you know what, We need to send Saul and Barnabas and it says a few other people to go down to the church in Jerusalem. We need to go down to the apostles and the church and we will go before their council and we will let them decide what needs to be done. I believe Satan was trying to stop the movement with everything he had because the gospel was spreading and spreading and spreading. In Acts chapter 15, verses 4 and 5, Paul and Barnabas get down to Jerusalem. And when they come to Jerusalem, they're welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they reported everything God had done through them. And then it says, some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised. And now they add, and required to obey the law of Moses. Good thing it was Paul and not Peter. Can you imagine? He shares this amazing story of what's been taking place. And everywhere Paul went, signs and wonders and miracles were attesting to the gospel of Jesus. And people were getting saved everywhere he went. And now these guys say, well, that's really nice, but you need to go back. And they need to all get circumcised. That's why the church has so many women in it and not many men. We'll go past that. <laughs> they got to get circumcised 
And then they need to follow the law. Now the law, we oftentimes think of the Ten Commandments. No, the law at that time had 613 laws. These people were going to be, according to these guys, they had to change their whole lifestyle. They had to live in a whole different way. They had to follow all of the dietary laws. They had to follow all the laws on how they should dress. They had to follow all the laws on how far they could walk on any given day. They had to follow all the laws of the Sabbath, etc., etc., etc. And then, after they're circumcised and done that, now they can become Christians. Paul evidently held his peace, but Peter steps up and he addresses the council. Now, when I read that, it's so easy for my mind to go to what are wrong with these people? What are they thinking? Why are they trying to redefine what it takes to become a member of God's church? But then, if I think about it very long, I realize we do the same thing today. What's it take? That's one of the questions I get, Mike, what's it take to become a member of church? Well, do you love Jesus? Do you know him as your personal Savior? Want to support the vision of the church? Yeah, that's it. Really, that's it? You don't have to get cleaned up. You don't have to dress a certain way, talk a certain way, act a certain way. I mean, can I still play cards? We, redefine, we have churches and denominations always trying to redefine what it takes to become a member of God's church. So it's not so surprising. It's the same tool that Satan used 2,000 years ago to bring works into salvation that's by grace through faith. Peter stands up and he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear the message from my lips. And he's making reference to the, the house of Cornelius. And he had come back and brought that message and they received it at that time and everything was okay. So he's reminding of that, him, them of that first. And then he goes on and he says, God knows the heart. Showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them for he purified their hearts by faith. I want to emphasize verse 8. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them. God, who knows the heart. You know, we really don't know a person's heart. We really don't. What we do know is their behavior, the way they dress, their tattoos, their body piercings, their vocabularies, the music they listen to. And all of a sudden, a lot of churches get very fussy about who can belong to their church. Who feels welcomed when they come to their church? 
It's the same thing that was taking place 2,000 years ago. They didn't want these Gentiles to get in that easy. I mean, look at all we had to go through. We had to get circumcised. We had to follow 613 laws. Peter reminded them, God made no distinction between us and them. God knows the heart. God did not let their habits or the behaviors of the Gentiles disqualifying them from receiving grace, saving grace, by faith. In fact, Peter says this in verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? In other words, why are you putting all these rules and regulations and expectations on them when we can't keep them and we're not perfect? Same is true today. It's really easy to start putting on rules and regulations and expectations and there is not one of us that's perfect. And if we can remember when we got saved, we were probably just a little bit less than perfect. There are lots of churches, and I trust God that we would not ever be one of them, where people don't feel like they can walk in because they don't look, smell, talk, dress the right way. The vision and mission of Jesus as he defined it has been forgotten. And people are continually trying to redefine what church is supposed to be. Peter declares it so clearly with so few words. God knows their hearts. No one is perfect. And Peter concludes the matter in verse 11 by saying, We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved. Just as they are. And in the, the study guide that we're using in our life groups right now, Andy Stanley says this on page 49 of his study guide. And I believe it's up on the screen. It says, because God knows heart, our hearts, he can purify them before we purify our lives. Isn't that amazing? doesn't matter what we look like, smell like, dress like, talk like, how many tattoos, how many piercings, how many bad habits we've got. He can purify our heart before our lives and our bodies are purified. God can purify your heart before you fix your marriage. Matter of fact, I've learned it works a lot better if that does that first. God can purify your heart before you face up to the truth that insecurities drive you into behaviors that make you ashamed. If he can do that for you, he can do that for the people around us. I think there's so much truth to these things. And it, and it can be so subtle. But the message we as the church, and I'm talking about Christ's church, God's church, the message we so often send to those that are seeking, those that are searching, is somehow or other not good enough, they're not qualified. We tend to disqualify them by subtle things. You know, are we, as Victory, a church where people can come and feel like they actually belong before they believe? 
Are we that kind of church? Are we the kind of church that will allow people to believe before they get sanctified, all cleaned up? We better be. Are we a church that remains outward focused instead of inward focused? We want to pay attention inward, but our focus is always to remain outward. God's church is to reach the world, the lost, starting in our own Judea, our own Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the world. Are we a church that tries to preserve instead of advance? You know, if I'm not consciously aware of that line of thinking, I can get into just preserving. What we got is pretty good. It's comfortable. It's kind of, I'm content. But we're called to be advancing. You know, he, there's a reason we're called the army of God. And it's not to just sit in camp and enjoy one another, as much fun as that is. We are called to advance. What kind of church are we? A trustworthy church where people can feel comfortable walking in just as they are. Trusting that God can purify a heart before they're all cleaned up. I know I got saved and I still had a whole lot of bad habits. Matter of fact, I've been saved a lot of years now and I still got a lot of bad habits. I got a feeling I'm not the only one. Why would we ever want someone to sense or feel like we're expecting them to change before they're welcome? We're called to love people. And the best way we can love people is to share Jesus with them. That's the kind of church we want to be. Let's close in prayer. Lord, it's only by your grace that anybody in here is saved. You gave us the grace to believe, to receive the good news of the gospel of Jesus. God, thank you for loving us so much and caring about us so much that you sacrificed your son on a cross. We thank you that you raised him from the dead, defeating sin, defeating death. And you offer to each one, every person on this planet, the opportunity to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God, I pray this morning if there's anybody here who's never done that, today's the day that they acknowledge their sin and the need for a Savior and accept Jesus as that Savior. And Lord, I thank you for every single one that you have brought into the Victory family. Lord, we pray that we would never lose vision for seeing your family expand. That we would continue to look outward that we would walk in boldness of faith, that we would always walk in love. God, that we would be the kind of church where people sense the love of the Holy Spirit, the love of Jesus when they walk through these doors. And that we as your people would love on all that you would bring our way. But Lord, I pray that we would never remain inside the walls of the church, but we would go out and demonstrate the love of Jesus to those we come in contact with on a daily basis. 
Lord, we pray and cry out for that kind of grace. That we could be the church that you want your church to be. I pray now, Lord, as we go our different directions, Father, you go before us. Your Holy Spirit goes with us. God, I pray we would continually seek out the opportunity to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus. To share our testimony, how you have transformed us, how you have changed us for your glory. Pray you bless each one as we go our different ways. In Jesus' name, amen.